Last Saturday, I had the privilege of marrying my second oldest son. And leading up to that point and thinking through the service and uh, crafting the homily, I couldn't help but reflect over his life, just uh, how fast it had gone. 18 years just in a blink. And now he's married. Now he can say, I have a wife, and he's formed his own household. And, and it was just a moment, and I thought to myself, there's so much I, I still haven't taught him. There's so much that I, I left undone, so much that I, I should have spoke when I was silent, or I, or I spoke when I should have been silent. And then I thought, I still have four more sons in my house. I've got to get busy. I've got so much work to do. And periods of transition like this often cause us to reflect. And, and then I was, as I was preparing for this sermon and reading through Psalm 3 and thinking about David, David had 19 sons. That's a lot. I have six. That's like nothing compared to David, right? And there may have been more with his concubines. And David's household was less than peaceful. Amnon, his oldest son, raped his daughter Tamar. And then, because David refused to do anything, Tamar's brother Absalom killed Amnon. This psalm, Psalm 3, is written in one of the most distressing situations that David ever experienced. When his son rebelled against him, started a coup, and, in, and stole the heart of Israel. And in the midst of that, fleeing from his palace in Jerusalem, out into the wilderness with his family, not knowing what will happen to them. In the midst of the most difficult distress that he probably ever experienced. Yes, he was hunted by lions and bears, and and yes, he faced Goliath, and he was hunted by Saul, but nothing compares to patricide. Nothing compares to having your own family turned against you. Now maybe when he left, he left in, in utter shame. It says this in 2 Samuel 16, 7, 8, one of the the worthless men of Saul's household cursed David. He said, get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And his, his people who were with him, they wanted to kill this man. Let us put him out. And David said, no, because it might be true. It might be true because I am a man of blood. And amidst that distress, David cries out in Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Now maybe you can't identify exactly with David's story. But all of you have been in a distressing situation. All of you have been 
confronted face to face with the most difficult thing, how did you respond? How do you respond in the midst of the most distressing situations? Often we find in those situations more enemies come, like David, like Job's friends, to mock at us and say, look, it's because of your sin. It's because you've done this and this and this. That's why. It's your fault. There's no salvation for you. You're a sinner. How do we respond to distress? David gives us an example in Psalm 3 of the right way to respond. So if you have a Bible or, or you take up your bulletin, let's read together Psalm 3. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let's pray together. Almighty God, some of us are, are facing distressing situations. But all of us can enter into the suffering of David and learn how to lament because we live in a broken and sinful world, a world that does not work the way you designed it, a world where sons are turned against fathers and fathers against sons. And so as we pour out our grief before you today, may we come to the deep confidence and assurance of your sovereign care and protection as David did as we learn to lament as we learn to pour our hearts out to you may we sing this psalm with him and with the Lord Jesus and identify with your people who have suffered and may we come to deep confidence in you for we pray this in Jesus name and amen Psalm 3 is a lament. A lament is a, a prayer that moves from a place of pain to a place of trust. A lament is different than a complaint. It's not just like, I have experienced a difficult situation and so I'm complaining about it. But a, a lament is laying out the problem, something that's broken in the world, and moving from that problem by rehearsing who God is and what he has done till we come to a place where we trust him. Even if that problem still remains, we trust him. It's a turn to God in prayer. Complaining happens as if behind God's back. We say, this is why he brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness. 
We don't address it to God because we're not expecting him to enter in to do anything. Because we don't trust in him. That's complaining. Lamenting turns to God in prayer, recognizes that there is a real problem that we need God to intervene in. And then moves by remembering, by rehearsing who God is and what he has accomplished to a place of trust and confidence. We've already looked at the problem that David is facing. His son Absalom has rebelled against him. And he lays out his complaint in verses 1 and 2. He has many enemies that have risen against him. And they're speaking blasphemies. And those things, what people say, they they have a tendency to stick into us like barbed arrows. There is no salvation for him in God. And the term salvation is more expansive than just saving your soul. That's part of it. But it's delivering you from all of your enemies. It's restoring to you a place of peace when you are in turmoil. It's bringing you back when you're exiled, which is what is happening to David. And so in verses 3 to 6, David draws strength by remembering who God is and what he has done in the past. And then in verse 7 through 8, he concludes with a plea for God to act. And then he waits. He waits with the recognition that salvation belongs to the Lord. We must draw strength by remembering. That's the first point I want you to Walk away from this lament. What is the point of a lament? The point of a lament is, is a, it's a form of prayer that helps us with our grief and pain. If we don't process through those things, if we don't take that grief to the Lord, it will always confront us. And it will become bitterness and resentment. So notice first in verse 3, after David has outlined the problem, which is, Imagine being exiled, living in a palace and being the greatest king that Israel has ever had and will ever have. And then fleeing for your life into the wilderness with your wives and your children, not knowing what's going to happen, fearing. And then also your heart loving your son. You can see that in David over and over again. He still loves Absalom. He draws strength by but. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. It doesn't matter what my situation is. It doesn't matter if the entire world is allied together to confront me. You, O Lord, are my shield. That is the most crucial word there. But if we don't take our pain and then move to a place where we can say, but you always deal with your pain. David knows that despite his present circumstances, there are certain objective truths that he must remember. He must remember that God is faithful, that God is his shield Around him. He must remember who God is and and how he has acted in history to save 
his people. And we might call these the indicatives. These are the indicatives, what are, what are just factually true, what is objectively true. The Lord is our shield, our glory, and the lifter of our head. The character and attributes of God form the foundation of our faith. And why? Can you imagine if God was capricious and he changed his mind like many of us are? If one day he promised something, how many of you have promised something to your kids and not followed through? I have, lots of times, right? Because I'm mutable. My whims change, and I'm not able to follow through on the grand things I promise. Can you imagine if God was like that? If we couldn't trust him? But the author of Hebrews says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchangeable, and His promises are unchangeable. His word never returns to Him void. When He makes a promise, it is accomplished. It is that objective truth that David clings to in the midst of his most distressing situation. Shields guard you. You have a shield to keep off the the enemy's arrows. You have a shield to protect you. Think about the many times that David can look back in his life and think about how God was a shield to him. Think about his bravery at 14 to 16 years old when he's standing before Goliath, unafraid. Because God has been his shield. He says, even then at that young age, he remembers when God was a shield for him in his past. He said, when I was out tending my father's sheep, bears and lions would come. And God delivered them from me. And God delivered them from Goliath. And God delivered them from Saul. And over and over again, he has built up a repository of all the times that God has been a shield to him. That God has protected him. But actually, David is just quoting Scripture. David is himself just claiming the covenant promises of God. God says this to, to Abram in Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. When God says that he is something, that's a promise that we can take to the bank. You can believe it because it's objectively true. When God says, I am your shield... David can claim that. He can say, you are my shield. Even if God has never done anything in your past to protect you or you can't think of anything, I guarantee he has, he is still your shield. Because of the covenant promises are yours. I notice that he can say this despite this not being his present reality. This is the description of David when he left Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 15, 30. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. This is not David's present reality. David is not presently experiencing God as a shield. Do you understand that? He is facing the greatest distress he's ever faced. His son rebelled against him and has turned all of Israel against him. And yet he can say, you are my shield. 
It is his confidence in God that enables him to confess that God will be with him. Because, why? Because God is his glory. It's not his palace. It's not even his kingship. It's not the fact that he occupied a high status in Israel. It's that God is his glory. That God is the one who has called him into relationship. And as long as he's in relationship with God, nothing else matters. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. And of course, as he walks with his head hung down, covered in shame, he's confessing, you are the lifter of my head. What does he mean by that? He means that, God, you are the only one who can take all this shame from my sin and you can restore honor to me. Only you can lift up my head in the midst of this distressing situation. I cannot lift my own head. I cannot be my own glory. I cannot be my own shield. My confidence is in you. When you're separated from God, your sin causes your head to sink in shame. But when God has forgiven your sins, when you are in covenant with Him, and when you're walking by faith in God, removes your shame and guilt and He lifts up your head. In other words, He gives you honor instead of shame. How do we respond to distressing situations? This is how David responds. How do we respond? You can tell a lot about someone by how they handle stress, how they deal with the difficult things in their lives. Do they just crumple up in despair? Do they fall into themselves? Are they distracted by their distress? The problem is that often we forget to remember. We forget to remember that God is our shield, our glory, and the lifter of our head. John reminded us last week as he preached through Romans 8 that God is the one who who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If the God who spared no expense to to return you back to him, no expense to... By giving up his own son, how will he not give you all things? Paul's conclusion is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. No one, John said. No one. Nobody. Notice verse 4 seems to suggest that God has already answered his prayer. For deliverance from those who say there is no hope for him and salvation from God. One commentator says the Hebrew tenses of 3, 4 probably indicate that the crying and answering have happened more than once. Every time I cried aloud to the Lord, he answered me. Over and over again, when I have cried to the Lord, he responded. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. It's a settled done fact and the result of course the result is present rest in the midst of that distressing situation david can rest he says in verse 5 i lay down and slept and i woke again for the lord sustained me 
That, that is the normal cycles of life. He went to bed, he woke up. He went to bed, he woke up. Many of us have struggled with insomnia. You want to sleep, but you can't. You have a great desire to sleep. But you can't force yourself to do that. David has that naturally. He can, in the midst of this distressing situation, he's not at home, he's out in the wilderness in exile, and he says, I laid down and slept, and then I woke up. Why? Because the Lord sustained me. David has built trust and confidence in who God is, his promises to be a shield, the glory and the lifter of his head, and that gives him present rest in the midst of his distress. We have failed to encourage ourselves with the gospel. Why are we so restless as a society? Well, because we're not in right relationship with God. He gives rest to his people. And that's why David pens this psalm to be sung as a community. In one sense, we enter into his distress so that we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This can be true of you, even if you haven't experienced the distress of him because you trust in his God too. And therefore, you have present rest. Sometimes we forget to remember and then we need the covenant community to come alongside and remind us. We need the faithful words of a spouse to lift us up out of our despair. To say, remember who God is. Remember what He has done for you. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We need to sing this psalm so that we remember, so that we know that God is our shield and our glory and the lifter of our head, the one who has removed our shame because of, guilt, because of sin. We need that from one another. Paul says to do this to each other. Sing psalms to each other. That's why I encourage you all to sing loudly. It doesn't matter if you don't have the greatest voice. Your brother sitting next to you, your sister on the other side, needs to hear you sing those words. They need to be encouraged by you. But the form of lament consists not only in rehearsing the indicatives, it also responds with supplication, calling on the Lord to deliver us. Therefore, this second part is we ask and wait for God's salvation. We ask in prayer and we wait in faith for God's salvation. What makes lament unique is its confidence that God will respond to our prayers. I don't know about you, but that staggers me. The fact that the sovereign creator of the world uses my prayers to accomplish His purposes. That will make you think twice before you say, I'll pray for you and never do it. David, again, quoting Scripture, claiming the covenant promises, says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, 
Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And arise, O Lord, is just shorthand for what Moses used to say when the Ark of the Covenant was taken up. He would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. David is uttering a battle cry. God, come and fight for me. Be my shield and rout my enemies and destroy them. Smite them on the cheek because they've been saying to me there's no salvation. Break their teeth out for they're speaking blasphemy. Notice that the enemies of David are the enemies of God. We saw this in Psalm 2. When all the kings and the nations united together against the Lord and against His anointed, when they are allied together against the king, they're fighting against God Himself. That's what makes Absalom's rebellion so heinous. But despite his exile, David refuses to resign himself to defeat. He doesn't indulge in self-pity. He doesn't say, well, I'm sure you could deliver me, but you brought me here, so it must be your will. I guess this is where I'm at. Hopefully something will change, but I don't have any faith that it will. See, complaining keeps us from prayer because we complain behind God's back. Complaining would look like, I can't believe I'm in this situation. It's God's fault that I have 19 kids anyway. It's not my fault. How could I ever care for that many kids? And he's the one that opens the womb, right? This is actually God's fault. And now I'm, I'm out in exile, and it's not my fault. What could I have done? David doesn't complain. He doesn't fall into self-pity. These things keep us from prayer. Instead, he appeals to God for, el- for help. The truth is, if, if he had disciplined his son, he might have been able to prevent this shameful turn of events. Maybe. Maybe not. That's not really the point. Prayer is not whining to God. Prayer is lifting up our desires unto God for things that are agreeable to His will. And this is the crucial thing. Prayer is not trying to get God to do our will. A lot of my prayers are trying to get God to see things my way. Like, God, if you would just look at it from my perspective, this would be the best option. I guarantee it would work out better than what's going on now in my little finite mind, right? But that's how we often pray. We're trying to get God to conform to our will instead of aligning ourselves with His will. And this is often because the Word gets divorced from prayer. When we stop Prayer is not a monologue about me just reciting things to God. Prayer is a dialogue. And in order to be a dialogue, you have to be in the Word of God. Because that's how He is speaking to you. You are hearing from Him and you're responding to His Word. Prayer must be accompanied with the Word of God. David is in a sense saying... You have sought me out with your anointing oil and you have made me king. And now my son has risen up against me and driven me from home into exile. And now I am cut off from your presence 
from the Ark of the Covenant and the corporate worship of your people. But you are my shield, my glory, and you will take away my shame by restoring my honor. So arise, O Lord, and deliver me from my enemies. That is a prayer of faith. A prayer that's grounded in God's unchangeable character and in accordance with His will. Brothers and sisters, you're never safer when you pray the Word of God back to Him. That's why the Psalms, we need to steep our prayers with the Psalms. Not, Lord, I just want to pray that you would... That's never in the Psalms anywhere. Just pray the Psalms. Just pray this psalm and you are identifying with his distress and you're building the same trust and confidence that David had. And he gets to the very height, the very height, which could be the summary of the entirety of Scripture in verse 8. Notice that in the end of verse 7, David has recognized God's hand at work in all his past victories. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now David is not saying that he had no part in it. David is saying that through him, God has acted to put down his enemies. And you might might be thinking... This sounds a little harsh. I don't know if I could pray this. Break my enemy's teeth? I mean, we're New Testament Christians, right? I mean, you're supposed to love, love your enemy, do good to those who persecute you, be gracious to them. I don't think we can pray this. This is Old Testament stuff. No, we can pray this. There's been much debate about, these are called imprecatory psalms because they're calling on God to curse their enemies. Can we call on God to curse our enemies? Yes, we can. Notice first that God, David's call to curse his enemies is not specific. He's not say, strike Absalom on the mouth and break Absalom's teeth. He knows full well who his enemies are. He doesn't name them. He says, enemies and wicked. Let God sort out who your enemies are and who the wicked are and let Him have vengeance against them. Because that's His prerogative. All you're doing is calling on God to do what He has promised to do. Judge the wicked. Judge those who are oppressing the righteous. Lift up the humble and put down the proud. That's all we're praying to do. And we use this kind of language because that's how we hate God's enemies. We hate Enemies of God. Because we want to hate what God hates and we want to love what God loves. So can we pray imprecatory psalms? Yes, we can. Because because one, they're embedded in this story of lament. And it's a story of of David ultimately recognizing that, as verse 8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This could be the summary of all of Scripture. That from the very beginning to the end, God is the one who saves His people. He is the one who has intervened in history to bring us salvation. Sin is our greatest enemy. When we're praying 
strike my enemies on the cheek. We're not, we're not even talking about fleshly people. We're talking about powers and principalities. We're talking about spiritual forces that are at work to oppress and destroy the kingdom of God. Notice that the prayer, his prayer does not mean inaction. David, we, we know the story. David was restored and Absalom was put down. God sent Hushai to give bad advice to Absalom. He said, no, don't, don't attack right away because David will have hid himself in a hole. And you know, he's like, he's a warrior. He's probably separated from his people and he's an enraged bear that's been stripped of his cubs. You don't want to mess with them right now. And that gives David time to prepare and call a whole army. And he puts Joab in command of them and they defeat Israel. And 20,000 people are killed with his little band of David's army. And Absalom himself is riding on a donkey and because his hair is so thick, because he's so proud, he gets hung in an oak tree by his hair. And the donkey runs on and he's just hanging there. And then Joab goes and puts three spears in him and kills him. Absalom's rebellion comes to nothing. And David is restored. His honor is returned to him. But David acted. He didn't just sit and do nothing. Prayer does not mean inaction. It's like, Lord, I really want to be a better husband. Oh, well, try again tomorrow. No, you pray and then you act. You pray and then you live like your prayer. You pray again and then you act. You pray again and then you act. Because you're always recognizing that salvation belongs to the Lord. Only the outcome belongs to God. You can act all day long. And if you're acting in opposition to God, you will not be successful Absalom is case in point. But if you're acting and and you're consistent with His will, then you will find God's blessing there. Ultimately, this psalm and the events of laments, they foreshadow the exile of our Lord Jesus in His death on the cross. Before He even undergoes the horror, He pleads with His Father in His own lament, which we read from Luke. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As he drops blood in his sweat. Out of just the anticipation of bearing the weight of sin. And then in the greatest act of treachery, the people he created, his own people, betrayed him and handed him over to death. They were led, of course, by the traitor Satan, who, who thought if he killed the king, he would inherit the kingdom. If he killed the son, he could defeat God. But as Absalom before him, he ends up foiled in his attempts. For in his death, Jesus defeated death and hell by rising victorious from the grave. And like a conquering king, he returned to sit on his throne in heaven, where he, even now he is ruling and reigning. From this psalm, we have learned to lament. 
We have learned that a right response to distressing situations is to turn to the Lord, laying out our complaint before Him. But we don't remain there. We strengthen faith when we remember who God is, when we rehearse His character, when we think about what He has done to accomplish our salvation. And then that becomes the basis, the ground for our plea for God to intervene, for our plea for God to come and to save us. Because many of us, many of us were Absalom. We had turned in rebellion against God. And he came and he subdued our hearts and he transformed us. And he made us follow the right king. Only in lament can we take the pain of the world, all the grief of this sin-filled world, and really process it the right way. As we carry it before the Lord, we don't try to deny that it's not pain, but we say, Lord, you, I, I can't. And then we, we move to trust and confidence. And then we ask Him to deliver us. And we say, because of your faithfulness, deliver me. Because of your promises, because of who you are, come and save me. And then we act. We act because we are motivated by the faith that comes from our deep confidence in who God is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we, we thank you so much for your loving kindness for who you are, for what you have accomplished in the salvation of your people. You moved heaven and earth to come and save us. You who did not spare your own son, how will you not also give us all things? Father, deepen our faith and our confidence. For many of us are distressed. Many of us are weary of dealing with our distress. May we use this psalm. May we sing it with gusto. May we remind ourselves of your character and have the same confidence so that we can have present rest now, even as we wait for you to deliver us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.